Hi, I'm Kay Ray, and this is the Kay Ray Reads to You podcast. Today I'll be reading Chapter 7 of The Four-Story Mistake by Elizabeth Enright. Chapter 7 is called The Show. Hello, kitty cat. You want a lap? It was queer the way the children kept disappearing nowadays. Cuffy couldn't understand it. Right in the house, too. She never saw them go out. She would hear them, noisy as usual, playing in the office, and then all of a sudden, absolute stillness. When she went up to see what was going on, there would be nobody. Nobody at all. Funny, did she only imagine that she heard a smothered whisper? The ghost of a giggle somewhere nearby? But where? The cupboards were empty. Or rather, they were full of everything under the sun except children. There was nobody under the tables or behind the piano— which Rush had moved out from the wall a little, because he said it gave a better light, or even up in the cupola. Sometimes there would be one child left in the office, Oliver usually, but when she asked him where the others were, he simply looked surprised, and answered truthfully, "'The others? Why, they were here a little while ago.' Cuffy just gave up. The truth, as you have guessed, is that they spent a lot of time closeted in Clarinda's room." In the first place they had to clean it, and that had taken two rainy afternoons after school, and the better part of the next Saturday. Randy and Mona scrubbed the floor, and Rush, at the risk of breaking his neck, washed all the windows, sitting outside on the sills and leaning back against nothing, like a professional window-cleaner. Whenever he saw anybody—Willie, Cuffy, Father, or anybody innocently chopping wood or hanging out clothes, or something—he would drop into the room, crouch on the floor, and hiss— "'Shh! They mustn't see! They mustn't guess!' Oliver was given a dust-cloth, and told to dust. This he did in his own fashion, which meant that Mona followed him with another dust-cloth, and did it all over again. Everybody helped with the walls and ceiling, brushing away the immemorial cobwebs and soft dust, with brooms and mops wrapped—with brooms and mops wrapped in cheesecloth. But when it came to waxing the floor, Cuffy got suspicious— and they had to wax the whole office floor as well, just to put her off the track. Oh, how their backs ached that night! Oliver fell asleep over his supper, and to Mona's drowsy mind, the sentences in her French grammar were as indecipherable as Aramaic symbols. But the reward was worth the labor. The room was beautiful in the daylight, with its faded, still-gay wallpaper, its five sparkling windows and shining floor, and Clarinda, properly dusted, glowing in her golden frame and ruby dress. The room appeared even lovelier than it was, because they themselves had discovered and restored it. "'But it needs furniture,' Mona said. The morning sunlight flooded the room. It was a dazzle of light, a wonderful cosy place to sit in. But what to sit on? They couldn't remove any of the office furniture without Cuffy noticing it, and half, or at least a quarter of the room's charm, was its secrecy.' The best they could do was to smuggle in two orange crates and a footstool, to be used as chairs, but these did nothing to offset the elegance of Clarinda or the shining room. One of these days, Randy decided, we'll have to tell Father and Cuffy, and see what can be done. In the meantime they used it as a meeting-place, a sort of clubhouse. "'Shh!' Rush would warn, as though it were a matter of the gravest danger. "'Oliver, stand guard at the head of the stairs, will you?' "'Come on, Mona, help me with the piano.' Then the door would be opened quietly, and they would tiptoe into the room. Their wonderful, secret room. 
One day Mona called a meeting there, a special meeting, for she had an important suggestion to make. Usually the business at hand was nothing that couldn't have been discussed anywhere, and in any case it was always rapidly abandoned and forgotten in favour of games or irrelevant conversation. But this was an exception. "'Sit down, all of you,' commanded Mona regally, taking the footstool for herself. "'Oliver, you'd better sit on the floor beside Isaac. Everybody comfortable? Okay. Now, I've called this meeting because I have a plan to propose. I think a very timely and important plan. A—a a sort of campaign, in fact.' "'Listen to the President of the D.A.R.,' said Rush. He couldn't help teasing her. Her imitation of a chairwoman was so unconscious and so perfect.' All she needed, he thought, was a bunch of orchids, and some eyeglasses, and a big hat. "'Now rush,' objected Mona, but her composure wasn't in the least disturbed. "'Look, this is the thing. We all know there's a war, don't we?' "'Yes, they all knew that.' "'And we want to do something about it, don't we? To help, I mean.' "'Naturally. But what could they do?' "'I have it all planned,' said Mona excitedly. "'forgetting to be a club president as she sprang to her feet "'and upset the footstool. "'This is my campaign. First of all, paper. "'We must collect tons of paper. "'The government needs it.' "'What for?' inquired Oliver. "'Oh, I don't know. They just need it, that's all. "'Randy, you can be in charge of the paper campaign. "'And then metal. Tin cans and toothpaste tubes and—and, and, well, metal. "'Rush can be in charge of that. "'Oliver can collect tinfoil.' "'And besides that,' Mona looked at them sternly, "'if you want to be really patriotic, "'you must all let me practice my first aid on you.' "'Ah, a real sacrifice,' moaned Rush. "'I'll be in charge of the knitting, too,' continued Mona imperturbably. "'All of you must learn.' "'Me?' cried Rush. "'Knit?' "'Why not?' said Mona. "'This is war. "'And bonds.' "'We must all buy lots of defence bonds.' "'Bonds,' said Rush. "'Where do you get that? "'My allowance has to be stretched to the breaking point "'in order to buy even a defence stamp once a week.' Mona's eyes began to shine. She was getting to the best part of the plan. "'I've thought it all out, and I've decided we should have a show.' "'Charge admission, you mean?' Randy looked a little shocked. "'We never did before.' "'Of course charge admission, silly. That's the whole point. So we can buy a defence bond.' Randy saw that that made a difference. "'You can do a dance or two, Mona told her, "'and Rush can play the piano, and Oliver—' "'I can turn somersaults,' Oliver suggested hopefully. "'I can almost do a cartwheel sometimes.' "'No, you can be in the play I'm writing,' said Mona, genius burning.' "'Only I don't want to be the Queen's baby like last time,' said Oliver, uncompromisingly. "'You won't have to be. You can be a soldier, or a robber, or something. Yes, I think a robber.' "'Boy!' agreed Oliver wholeheartedly. Everybody was pleased with the idea. It had been too long since they had had a show. "'And Randy can design the costumes. Cuffy and I'll help make them. She can design the sets, too, and Rush and Willie can make those.' "'Rush, you can plan the musical background. "'We'll get Willie to change the records when we need them.' "'The trouble is we're always limited to only four characters when we have plays,' Rush said. "'What's the matter with four? "'You can use the same person twice if you know how.' 
"'You used me three times in the last play,' Randy remembered. "'I was the nurse and the beggar-woman and the detective.' "'What's this opus going to be called?' Rush wanted to know. "'It's a fantasy,' Mona told him. "'It combines all the best features of Hans Andersen, Grimm's fairy tales, the Arabian Nights, and Superman. It's called The Princess and the Parsnip.' "'And who, if I may ask, is to have the part of the princess?' inquired Rush wickedly. "'Well, uh, why, I thought I—I mean—' Mona floundered. "'Skip it. I was only kidding. Of course you'll be the princess. Who else? You're the only one in the bunch who can act. You're good, and we all know it,' said Rush graciously. "'When will we have it?' asked Randy, with an excited bounce. "'How about the week before Christmas?' "'Maybe the Saturday before? "'It'll be holidays then, and we'll have plenty of time.' "'All that now remained was to ask the cooperation of Father and Cuffy and Willie, "'and that was gladly granted, as they had known it would be. "'Before long the house was humming with exciting activity. "'They'd almost forgotten what fascinating work it was to build a show. "'Mona wandered about the grounds like dews, reciting her lines out loud. "'Rush practised furiously.' Randy composed two dances, one to the gollywog's cakewalk, and one to the girl with the flaxen hair. Also she made watercolour sketches of costume designs. There was always a long streak of purple or green at the corner of her mouth, because she couldn't remember not to chew her paintbrush when she was thinking. They had rehearsals every few minutes. Oliver learned his lines first thing, and recited them with all the expression of a granite slab— "'No, no,' Mona would tell him, exasperated. "'The way you say, "'Your Highness the Baron Hackensack demands your immediate execution, "'sounds just as if you were saying, "'No, thank you, I don't care for any more corned beef hash.' "'Poor Oliver. He tried, "'but it was obvious that his talents did not lie in the direction of the drama. "'Rush was wonderful in his part, or rather both his parts, "'almost as good as Mona herself, "'and Randy was what theatrical critics describe as adequate.' Yards of coloured cheesecloth billowed over the office table, and very wet posters executed by Randy lay drying all over the floor. You had to move about with extreme caution. Down in Cuffy's room there was a great overflowing box of odds and ends that Mrs. Oliphant had sent to them some time ago. It was a treasure trove. In it there were crumpled bits of gold and silver lame, hardly tarnished at all, chiffons in purple and green and blue, scraps of lace, beaded georgette, a huge red satin petticoat, a velvet basque the colour of a pansy, and two large pieces of silk encrusted with sequins. One was gold, and one was midnight blue, dazzling, extravagant things that cried out to be used, worn, admired. In fact, it was really because of the sequins that Mona had first decided to write a play. With such exotic material at hand, it seemed a sin to waste it. The invitations were sent out at once, one to Mrs. Oliphant, of course, one to the Janeway family in New York, and two other families there, and to all their Carthage school friends, and the principal, Mr. Coffing, and his wife, and the wheelwrights, and Mr. and Mrs. Purvis, and several other people. It was too much to hope that they'd all come. Next they went to work on the programme. Rush typed them on Father's machine. The Melendy's Christmas Show 1. Piano Solo by Rush Melendy. Chorale. Johann S. Bach. 
2. Dance by Miranda Melody. Gollywog's Cakewalk. Claude Debussy. 3. Piano Solo by Rush Melody. Intermezzo. Johannes Brahms. 4. Dance by Miranda Melody. The Girl with the Flaxen Hair. Claude Debussy. 5. The Princess and the Parsnip. A play in three acts by Mona Melendy. Cast of characters. Princess Glamorosa. Mona Melendy. Lady Esmeralda. Miranda Melendy. The Witch Sourpuss. Miranda Melendy. Prince Paragon. Rush Melendy. Baron Hackensack. Rush Melendy. Baron Hackensack's Accomplice. Oliver Melendy. Soldier. Oliver Melendy. Messenger, Oliver Melendy. Bloodhound, Oliver Melendy. Second Bloodhound, Isaac Melendy. Scene 1. A forest near Glamorosa's castle. Scene 2. Interior of the castle. Scene 3. The castle roof, midnight. Randy painted little pictures of Glamorosa on the covers of the programs and stitched the pages together with gold thread. They looked very pretty and professional. There was some debate as to how much admission price they should charge. Mona thought it ought to be a dollar. For our country and all, she said. A dollar, cried Randy, scandalized. Nobody would be able to come. A dollar for grown-ups, and fifty cents for children, I mean. But even that seemed far too high. In the end, they decided to charge fifty cents for grown-ups, and twenty-five cents, and pep. In the end, they decided to charge fifty cents for grown-ups, and twenty-five for children. "'And we can get somebody from school, Pearl Cotton or someone, to take charge of the ticket-selling,' said Mona. The great day approached. The sliding doors between the dining and living-rooms had been opened wide, and the stage set constructed in the dining-room. The Melendies had to eat the last few meals before the play in the kitchen, standing up, too, or perched on tables, because all the chairs in the house were now arranged in rows in the living-room. Would there be enough of them? That was the question. The armchairs were grouped together at the back like a family of bears. The dining-room chairs stood in a righteous and unyielding row in the middle, and beside them the three Melendy rockers tipped jovially at different angles, like rowdy people laughing, splitting their sides at some secret joke. In front of these there was a strange assortment, kitchen chairs, and odd upstairs ones, and the big couch, and the little yellow brocade love-seat, old and young, spare and fat, in a sort of Memorial Day parade. At the very front were Oliver's two small chairs, all the footstools in the house, and some packing-boxes, somberly draped in steamer-rugs. These were for the littlest children in the audience. Side by side waited the chairs, transfixed, struck dumb before the beauty of the stage-set confronting them. Rush and Willie had built the backdrop out of beaver-board, and Randy had painted it. A lonely forest scene, dozens of pale blue tree-trunks, and showers of blue leaves. At the right an opening among them disclosed the misty pinnacles of a castle. On the floor the old green rug from father's study was arranged in mossy folds, and soft blue cheesecloth curtains hung at either side of the wide door. The girls had dyed the cheesecloth themselves, and their blue hands had horrified people for days afterward. 
Randy kept wandering into the living room, sinking first into one chair and then into another, regarding with awe the beauty of her handiwork. And this was only the first set, too. Think of that! Behind the forest scene there was the interior of the palace, with a tapestry painted on its wall, and a window containing a piece of cloud, and a sun with as many petals as a daisy. A throne went with that one, made out of father's old Morris chair and a bedspread. And then there was the night scene. It was the best of all. Against its dark background were gold and silver constellations, fire-tailed comets, Saturn poised within his rings, and a moon as big as a bicycle wheel. And the magic thing, the really super thing about it, was that it was painted with phosphorescent paint. At a given signal Willie was to turn off the lights, and the audience would find themselves gazing at a moon and stars that glowed in the darkness with a green, unearthly light. Oh, it was almost too much. They had never, never staged a production so beautifully before. Maybe we should have charged a dollar after all, thought Randy. Yes, and the costumes. Mrs. Oliphant's sequins and gold lame added an Arabian night's opulence to them. Mona was going to look wonderful in her splendid robes, a real princess. You couldn't believe it looking at her now. She was wearing her oldest sweater and skirt, and her hair was wound up on dozens of little metal curlers. I'm going to leave them on all day and sleep in them all night and only take them off just before the performance tomorrow, she said. You'll have a mighty sore scalp, Cuffy warned her. It'll be worth it, Mona said in an exalted voice. Anything's worth it if my hair just curls enough. All for art, remarked Rush. He was trying on the mustache he had made out of a dime store hair switch, which he had to wear as Baron Hackensack. He played two roles, that of the villain and that of the hero. It made it difficult, since both could never be on the stage at the same time. The prince was forced to cry, Hark! I hear Hackensack and his odious henchman, Oliver, approaching. He shall not find me here. Or Hackensack muttered, Yonder goes Paragon the prince. Take cover, men. This is not the moment for our reckoning. And in the end the battle to the death between Hackensack and the prince had of necessity to take place behind the scenes, with Willie clashing the carving-knife against a pot-lid, and Rush uttering the dying groans of Hackensack as he ripped off the black moustache and crimson mantle—Mrs. Oliphant's petticoat—of the villain, and replaced the velvet doublet—Mrs. Oliphant's basque—and jewelled crown of the hero. It was during this final scene that Willie turned out the lights, and the phosphorescent moon was revealed. Everything had to be done very fast and with perfect coordination, like juggling, and by the time of the dress rehearsal they were all pretty good at it. The next morning was strange as a dream. Randy couldn't eat her breakfast. Her stomach felt queer and unfriendly. Mona, her head still bristling, as Rush said, like artillery in ambush, wandered about the house, her lips moving as she whispered her lines. She looked pale and frightened, but everyone knew that when the time came she would suddenly blossom, come to life like a rose, and make the part of the princess into something fascinating and important. Rush pretended to be perfectly calm. Perhaps he really was. You couldn't tell with him. And Oliver? Well, Oliver just quietly went away from it all, and retired to his cellar room with a box of toy battle equipment and some apples. 
he knew what was best for him. Everyone else took part in the preparation, even father. With Rush he went out into the woods and cut big branches of evergreen to decorate the living room, and then, with Willie to help them, they somehow got the piano down from the office to the living room beside the sliding doors. Cuffy had baked hundreds of cookies. There were trays of them cooling all over the kitchen, and if anybody so much as looked hungrily at one of them, she banished him sternly from the premises. And there was punch. The old china salad bowl was full of it, and so were the two cut-glass pitchers, the biggest mixing bowl, and several saucepans. Delicious punch, the colour of garnets, with little islands of pineapple and orange floating on top. Shortly after three the people began to come. Randy, in her flannel bathrobe, saw the first car from the window of Mona's bedroom, where she was to dress. Her stomach gave a sort of leap and turned over. She swallowed dryly and said, "'Here come the first ones.' "'Who?' asked Mona, beginning to take the curlers off at last. "'Wait a minute, let's see. Father's out on the front steps to meet them. Why, it's Mrs. Oliphant, and she has one, two, three, four, five people with her.' Three dollars worth,' observed Rush, in a mercenary tone from the next room, where he and Oliver were dressing.' Next came a taxi which disgorged the whole Janeway family from New York. Six of them. Randy was just stopped in time from throwing open the window and yelling to them. "'Not now,' said Mona severely. "'It would spoil the mood.' "'Oh, all right. And there come the Purvises in the garbage truck, and right behind it is Mr. Coffing's black sedan, and—' <coughs> "'Randy!' There was such consternation in Mona's voice that her sister whirled from the window. "'What's the matter?' "'My hair! Look at it! What'll I do?' It did look queer. It stood out in a great wiry muff all over Mona's head. "'I can't go on!' she kept wailing, just like a real actress. "'I cannot go on, looking like this!' Rush came and stood in the doorway. "'Whew!' he whistled with astonishment. "'The Brillo Queen!' "'Oh, go away,' said Mona tearfully. "'What shall I do, Ran? "'The more I brush, the more it stands up.' "'Wait a minute. "'I'll get Cuffy,' said Randy soothingly. "'If anybody can fix it, Cuffy can.' She ran down the back stairs in her soft ballet slippers. The house was humming like a wasp's nest. The front door kept opening and shutting, opening and shutting, and there were festive bursts of talk and laughter as still more people arrived. Cuffy, mercifully, was in the kitchen, prowling about, arranging things. She was wearing her best black satin dress, and a dusting of pure white powder on her rosy face. "'Lands, I hope I made enough cookies to feed that mob,' murmured Cuffy, looking up abstractedly. "'There must be more than fifty of em already. And by the way, why aren't you ready? It's twenty to four, and you know you're scheduled to start at four. "'Something awful's happened,' Randy told her. "'Mona's hair! It—it it won't lie down!' "'Great day in the morning!' cried Cuffy, rushing for the stairs. "'I told her she shouldn't leave them blame things on so long. "'Bring a bowl of water up with you, Randy, and then hustle right into your costume. "'Oh, and first bring me the wire hairbrush from my bureau.' "'These things being done, Randy hustled. "'Feverishly she put on the costume she and Cuffy had made for the gollywog dance. Feverishly she put on the costume she and Cuffy had made for the gollywog dance. 
It was a one-piece union suit dyed blue, and the headdress was made out of a blue mop, a blue dry mop, attached to a stocking skullcap. She also had blue mittens, blue socks, and her old blue ballet slippers. Mona directed her makeup. Put calamine lotion all over your face, Ran. Then talcum powder. It should be white as chalk. Mona's voice came jerkily, and her head bobbed under the vigorous strokes of Cuffy's brush. Now put blue around the eyes. It's there in that little box, and then a big red mouth that turns up at the corners. Here, let me do. It. Here, let me do it. I've had more practice. Cuffy stood waiting, brush in hand. Already the wild hair had begun to subside a little. Maybe it would be all right. As the finishing touches were being applied, there was a knock at the door. "Listen, folks," said Willie's husky voice. "It's five past already. The folks is all here. Every chair is taken. How soon you going to start?" "Right now," called Rush from his room. He appeared briefly in the doorway. "Keep your fingers crossed," he said, "and make it snappy, Ran. You be in the wings waiting, so you can go on just as soon as they get through applauding my first piano solo." If they applaud," said Mona, still smarting from that remark about the Brillo Queen. Listening, they could hear the noisy murmur of the voices downstairs, the sudden clatter of hand clapping, and then stillness. And now, very round and clear, came the first notes of the Bach chorale. Randy stole down the back stairs, a thin blue elf with a pounding heart. In the dim dining room, Oliver. Wearing his first costume, was lying on the floor playing with a toy tank. Willie Sloper, in his best suit, was leaning against the dining room table with his hands clasped in front of him and his head bowed. Every time he shifted his weight or moved about, one of his shoes gave a loud, healthy chirp, like a cricket. "Why, Randy, I thought you was a little blue dandelion," whispered Willie poetically. "Plays good, don't he?" he added, jerking his head in the direction of the music. Wonderful," agreed Randy fervently. The lovely air came out as sure and calm and strong as though Rush had been playing it all by himself in the office. Randy envied him. Looking down, she believed that she could see the second button of the union suit bumping up and down above her panic-stricken ribs. The music ceased, and there was tremendous applause. It went on and on like the sea, roaring interminably. Randy's head felt miles away from her feet. It felt light as a balloon, and her feet felt rooted to the earth. And between her head and feet, there was nothing but a sort of whirling emptiness. Willie, I can't do it," she gasped, turning the chalk-white face upon him as the clapping began to diminish. "I just can't. I'm too scared." "Ah,、oh, no, you ain't," Willie actually laughed. "You never been before." But they'd never had such an audience before. However, there was no time to discuss it. The first staccato notes of the Gollywog's cakewalk began. Willie gave her a gentle shove, and there she was, a blue gnome in a blue forest, dancing a grotesque and lonely little dance. That's all there was to it. The dance danced itself. She, Randy, just retired some place and closed her eyes and put her fingers in her ears. Then the music was finished, and she was making her little bow. The ocean of clapping was engulfing her, and Rush was grinning at her from the piano. Was it all over, already? Why, it was too soon. Now she could hardly wait to dance again, and with eyes full of stars, ran up the back stairs two at a time to change her costume. 
Loving the world, she burst into the bedroom. "'Oh, you look beautiful, Mona,' gasped Randy. And Mona did look beautiful. A real fairy-tale princess in her dazzling robes. The wild hair, still not quite subdued, shone in a rebellious mass about her shoulders, and her cheeks were pink with excitement, as well as rouge. "'You know, Randy,' Mona said solemnly, as she put on her tall, gilt cardboard crown, "'this is life!' And Randy, ripping off the blue suit with its buttons popping, and glancing at the shimmering costume for her next dance, agreed with all her heart. "'Huh!' grunted Cuffy. "'Tomorrow we'll have a powerful lot of cleaning up and dishwashing to do, don't forget. And that's life, too.' The play went marvellously well. Oliver forgot his lines only once, and there was hardly more than ten minutes' wait between scenes. Of course Russia's moustache fell off once, but he picked it up coolly and stuck it back in place, without any embarrassment. And then during the saddest part of the play, when Glamorosa is imploring the witch Sourpuss to, to grant leniency to Prince Paragon, Willie's chirping shoe could be heard distinctly as he walked slowly across the dining-room behind the scenes. But otherwise, what a success! The applause they received would have warmed the heart of any producer in the world. Afterward it was fun, too, when they came downstairs in their own clothes, traces of make-up still clinging to their faces, and mingled with the audience. What a lot of cookies they ate, now that their appetites had revived, and what a lot of compliments they got! Mrs. Oliphant embraced each of them warmly. Their cheeks were pressed against the icy links of her necklaces, and they breathed the scent of eau de cologne and camphor. "'It is the best performance you have given yet,' she told them. Mr. and Mrs. Wheelwright were overwhelmed. They thought Mona ought to be in the movies, and Randy and Rush should be on the concert stage. Mr. and Mrs. Purvis thought so, too. The Melody children felt that life would have been perfect if only they were allowed to give a new play every week.' The next day, as Cuffy had said, there was a lot of work to be done. Everyone seemed to be going some place with a chair. The piano was to stay where it was until after Christmas, because of family carol singing, but everything else had to go back in its place. Willie and Rush had to dismantle and store the scenery, and then clean and wax the floor. Randy and Mona washed endless sticky punch cups and glasses, endless dishes, and cookie plates, and pitchers but they did it willingly, standing side by side at the kitchen sink, and saying little. Each was lost in a golden haze of memory. Every now and then one of them would break the silence with a rapt voice. "'They liked the part where Oliver trips over his sword, didn't they? Remember how they laughed?' It was wonderful. A little later. "'The phosphorescent moon was a great success, don't you think? You could just hear them gasp. It was perfect.' And before they knew it, before they even realized that they had been working for a long time, everything was washed and put away. The floor was mopped, the dishcloths rinsed and hung to dry beside the stove. "'It might interest you to know, ladies,' said Rush, bursting through the swinging door, "'it might just possibly interest you to know that Father and I have just counted the receipts, and we find we're the possessors of twenty-six dollars and seventy-five cents.' Twenty-six dollars and seventy-five cents, almost enough to buy a bond and a half. It was a proud moment. 
The next day after breakfast father asked Mona to come into the study. He was quite formal about it, and Mona wondered if she had done anything wrong. "'Please sit down,' said father elegantly, motioning to a chair. She sat down and folded her hands. Father laughed. "'Don't look so worried. You're not going to be scolded.' He picked up his special paperweight that was shaped like a lady's hand, and examined it as though he had never seen it before. "'Mona,' said father at last, "'you've really set your heart on being an actress, haven't you?' "'Of course, father.' Mona looked surprised. About that there had never been any doubt, not since the time mother had taken her to a matinee of Peter Pan when she was six. "'You know it's hard work, don't you? You know you have to be better than good at it, or you might as well give up. You know you have to keep odd hours, work at night, sleep half the day, do the same thing, say the same words over and over and over again. Above all, you have to try to remain a real person, in spite of all the imaginary people you are playing.' "'Yes, father,' said Mona automatically. "'What was all this leading to, anyway?' "'I realize those things, and I don't care. I still want to be an actress.' Father nodded his head a little wearily. "'Yes, I know. You really mean it, don't you? All right, then. How would you like to begin your career right now?' "'Now?' repeated Mona, bewildered. "'Now? Father, what do you mean?' One of the people who came out with Mrs. Oliphant that day—oops, one of the people who came out with Mrs. Oliphant the day of the play is a radio director. He thinks he may have a part for you in one of his new radio serials, the part of a younger sister in a family play. "'You mean I'd be a professional? A real actress on the radio?' cried Mona. "'If you get the part,' said Father. "'You're to go to New York with Cuffy after New Year's and have an audition.' If you make good, you'll go in town twice a week for your broadcast. I believe the salary is quite generous. Oh, I'd do it free, Mona said. I'd do it for nothing if they wanted me to. It won't be necessary. But one thing, Mona, you're very young to be doing this kind of work. If you make good, do you think I can count on you to keep your head? We don't want any junior prima donnas temperamenting around the house." "'Oh, father, I promise. I swear I won't be like that. I'll be good as an angel. I'll—I'll I'll even darn Russia's socks without complaining. I'll play basketball at school. I'll wash all the stickiest, greasiest saucepans as if I loved it. I'll eat whole bales of spinach. I'll do anything. You'll see how good I'll be.' "'If you get the part,' added father. But Mona knew she'd get the part. She went out of the study and out of the house. Her galoshes might have been thistled down, her coat might have been made of air. Her feet didn't feel the earth beneath them, her hands didn't feel the surfaces they touched. She was in a state of bliss. Slowly, like a sleepwalker, she floated down to the brook. The pool above the falls was frozen solid, closed in a shell of clear black ice. Under it she could see the packed rows of little fish lying fast asleep. How beautiful they were! "'Oh, Brooke,' said Mona aloud in a quavery voice, "'Oh, fish, I think I'm really going to be an actress at last.'" And that is the end of chapter 7. See you next time.